Hey family, in this episode we're talking basic income with Andrew Yang, the 2020 presidential candidate and founder of Humanity Forward. Basic income for me is one of the policies that we must pass in this country for so, so many reasons. We have so many folks in this country that exist in a state of desperation. We use the poverty word often, but I like using desperation because it's a little more tangible. Even the most privileged among us know what it feels like to be desperate, at least in small doses. And we know how we behave when we're in a state of desperation. We have the ability to eradicate that mental and emotional state for people with a policy that's incredibly easy to execute on. Andrew touches on this a little bit in the episode, that it is sometimes hard to execute on policies we care about, like universal health care. But wealth redistribution and cash transfers are one of the easiest policies to execute. We can do it tomorrow if we decide to do it. It's not just important for crime uh, and some of the things we will stop, but it's important for some of the things it allows us to do. First and foremost on, on my heart is having a higher functioning democracy. It's very hard to care about the issues beyond your own personal needs if you have this economic boot on your back. If you feel like you might literally die or your family might be homeless, how are you supposed to push for macro progress? It's an impossible position to be in. So that's one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of basic income. There's also all these other use cases and people can work part-time and go back to school. People can leave adverse relationships. There's so many things this allows folks to do. And I know personally, I have benefited so much from the financial freedom to explore what I want to do. You know, and so many of us in this country do have a sense of basic income. It's kind of like parental basic income, right? We have that house we can move back into if things don't go right. And so that sense of security has allowed me to pursue things I'm passionate about. And I so deeply want that for the rest of our country. So let's dive into this episode with Andrew. I really, really hope you enjoy it. I'm gonna start doing more episodes where I just go on riffs like this and share a little bit more of my feelings on these issues. It's an incredibly difficult time in our country, uh, not just with the COVID-19 stuff. We've got obviously so many people hurting with unemployment. You know, we're in the midst of yet another police killing, yet another moment where we're discussing racial injustice in our country. And so I hope collectively we can all be part of the progress we need. All right, let's get into the episode. introduced to universal basic income a few years ago, maybe 2014 or 2015, when I was running a nonprofit that I'd started called Venture for America that trained entrepreneurs. And one of the things we were looking at was the future of work. And when you looked at the future of work, you realized that the future of work is going to be darker and darker for more and more people. And the books and thinkers I was engaging with all said, hey, we were going to wind up at universal basic income. So these are people like Martin Ford and Andy Stern, to some extent, Elon Musk and, and those folks. And when I first saw it in 2015 or so, I said, yeah, that's right. We're going to have to do that. <laughs> but I didn't decide to like quit my job and run for president on it until Trump won. And then I started digging into the numbers and I saw that to me, the reason why Trump won was that we'd automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in 
Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa. And for whatever reason, no one was really coming clean about it. And what we did to those manufacturing jobs, we were soon going to do to retail jobs, call center jobs, truck driving jobs, and on and on. And I'd been exposed enough to our political class to know that no one was going to actually sound the alarm. No one was going to do anything. And so I said, okay, someone should do that. It was one of those, like, someone really should uh, let people know what the heck is happening in the economy and the job market and make the case for universal basic income. So I went to the universal basic income community to the extent that exists. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, hey, anyone going to do this for for 2020? And then everyone was like, no. And then I said, all right, I'll do it. Uh, So that's how I, I came to champion it, you know, in the political realm. But I started getting turned on to it maybe five years ago, and I'm now more convinced than ever that this is our future. This is our present at this point, because if you look up, we're looking at depression era unemployment levels, you know, like the numbers, just because I'm a numbers guy, you probably saw the branding at some point, but (laughs) we've lost 36 and a half million jobs that we know about based upon filed unemployment claims. Uh, That understates the damage in the labor market, but economists are saying that 42% of those jobs will not come back. So if you just take that as your baseline, 42% of 36.5 million is about 15 million jobs gone for good. The Great Recession of 2008-2009, that period, cost us 8.8 million jobs. So you're looking at something like one and a half to two times the size of the Great Recession permanently. And that's right now. That's what we're living right now. So you have to look up and say, well, what's a path forward for these millions, tens of millions of people that we can actually make possible in a very, very rapid time frame? Because the reality is if someone is out of the labor force, they atrophy after about, let's call it uh, six months. The odds of them then dropping out of the workforce and not re-engaging, uh, just keep rising. So I, I thought I was making a case for what was happening, Xander. I obviously did not foresee a pandemic that caused 10 years worth of change in 10 weeks, which mm-hmm. is what we're experiencing right now, generally in negative ways. And the goal has to be that we also can change in positive ways, uh, that we can meet the problems with real solutions. You sometimes use the term the fourth industrial revolution. Can you touch on why this is different than past eras of innovation where folks maybe lost their current version of their job but moved on to a different type of job? What makes this time different? It's really about the rate of change and the scope of the changes. The number of industries that are being impacted, it's not just, for example, agriculture or just uh, assembly lines. And so I'm going to read a list of the technologies that are accelerating right now because of the pandemic, which we all use, most of us, uh, you know, day to day e-commerce, drone delivery, contactless digital payments, video conferencing, autonomous vehicles, 3D manufacturing, online learning, smart robotics. That's the fourth industrial revolution. And if you think about the number of jobs that will impact from the retail workers to the college clerks, to the security guards, to the ushers at the, the stadium, there are just so many jobs that will be impacted by the fourth industrial revolution that most people aren't going to be able to adjust in the right time frame. So this is something that I was very concerned about, obviously, before the pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated a lot of these changes. And the example I would use for you all is that now if you get pizza delivered to you and it's like a driverless car, you're actually excited about that because right. that means you didn't have to <laughs> interact with the driver. Like, you know, it's a value add. You're like, oh, so instead of being neutral, now it's actually something that consumers would seek. There's been a lot of basic income pilots, more so since you started, but there were some even before you started. 
uh, and then you've run some. So what are some of the most promising results from those pilots and what have you been most encouraged by and excited by? Well, when people get money into their hands, a number of things happen very consistently, uniformly even. They get healthier, mentally healthier, more optimistic, their relationships improve, their trust in society improves, uh, and that's across the board. The things that you kind of fear might happen don't happen. So what are those things? They work at the same levels unless they're one of two groups, new mothers who spend more time with their children or teenagers who spend more time in school. I don't think anyone's mad at those two things, <laughs> that they work less. Other than that, work levels stay the same. Consumption of alcohol and other substances stays the same or declines. The fact is when people have some kind of hope for the future, they actually self-medicate less <laughs> and they, right. their, their outlook improves. And this is really across the board. There are some very dramatic studies, Andrew, where there's almost a natural experiment where there was a population of Native Americans in North Carolina, and then some of them got money because they belonged to a tribe that had a casino, and then others did not. And it happened that social scientists were actually studying the entire population during this time. So they had like a side-by-side -side longitudinal study between like families that got money and families that didn't. And in the families that got money, their health and mental health and substance abuse all improved. But here's the thing that was the most profound. Their children's personalities actually changed to become more conscientious and more agreeable because they were in households where if they adopted certain personality traits, it actually led to good things. Whereas in the houses that didn't get the money, it didn't matter what the kid was doing. Like conscientious, not conscientious, <laughs> like, like it didn't matter. Right. So you actually saw improved personality and psychological makeups of the kids who grew up in the families that got some level of income. So that these findings, they blow you away when you start seeing what happens when people get even like a relatively small amount of money consistently. I, I know, you know, through our conversations, there's been points in time where a means-based system would never work. When you think about maybe women in abusive relationships and the ability to get out quickly, you know, when, when lives change quickly, the pandemic's a great example as well. Some of those things stood out to me when we've had our conversations about the lane that basic income fills that means-based programs might not. Uh, women are the great untapped resource in not just American life, but worldwide. And a, a lot of that is because of economics. Like a lot of that is because women are dependent upon uh, someone for a certain amount of money to, to survive. So they're trapped in abusive relationships. They're not able to actually solve the problems that they see around them in their communities and start businesses and start organizations. This to me is the most profound thing that basic income would do would be to unlock the potential of women to improve their own lives. Because think about it, if you're like a waitress at a diner and you're getting a thousand bucks a month and the, your boss at the diner harasses you, you can be like, and I quit. <laughs> then you just like walk out and be like, I'll be all right. And I can get another job at another diner where, where the person like, right, whereas right now, that waitress is getting harassed and they feel like they don't have a choice because they're like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I, I literally cannot go even a day or a weekend without a shift or my life falls apart. Right. Yeah. They're threatened by extreme poverty. I wanted to touch on, you know, your campaign was famously embraced across the political spectrum. You had disaffected Trump voters, you had libertarians, socialists, part of the Bernie bros were, were, were big fans of the Yang gang. 
why has basic income at a time of like incredible political divide, basic income has been able to be embraced by so many different types of political identities? I think if you're a liberal or progressive, which I identify myself as to the extent that those things matter. I mean, those labels, in my opinion, should just go out the window. But you're about trying to improve families, health and education and mental health and help women, help communities of color. This would go very, very far with faster. You know, so I was arguing for a uniform amount of money, but the the math is that, let's call it $12,000 a year is much more impactful in a community where you're making 28,000 than in a community where you're making 200,000. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so it just, it naturally goes as much, much further for our marginalized groups. And so if you're a progressive, you're like, hey, I love that. And then if you are a conservative or a libertarian, you're like, I don't mind people having money. That That's actually pro-freedom, pro-efficiency, it's pro-entrepreneurship, it's pro-business. And so what I say to, to folks who are more conservative is like what conservatives hate is not people having money. What conservatives hate is having a bureaucracy make everyone's decisions. And in this case, if you're putting money into individual families' hands, then it's up to the family to allocate it how they see fit. And so there are many people on both sides of the aisle that are very, very open to this. And as the numbers guy, this is the only way we can meaningfully rebalance a $22 trillion economy that is now going wrong for tens of millions of Americans generally at the bottom. But there are really no other ways we can do it. Uh, I think this is something that transcends party lines because it's actually kind of common sense. Going off script for a second, I know we've spoke about the inequality Uh, wealth inequality gap and how that's affected the velocity of money. Can you speak a little bit about the velocity of money, what that means and where we're at? Well, one of the things they say all the time, Xander, is that if you put money into poor people's hands, they'll spend it and then it gets circulated over and over again in their community. It's going to go to the daycare center or the little league signups that repair their car. And then you know what that garage or mechanic or daycare center or tutor is going to do? They're going to turn right back around and spend it, you know, at the hardware store on groceries. And then this money just circulates over and over again. And that's what's being lost. If I were to go into sneak into your bank accounts here in this room and like put a thousand dollars into it, frankly, you might not even notice. Like <laughs> It would have like zero impact on the economy because you'd be like, oh, like, like a number change. But if you put that $1,000 into the hands of anyone in the bottom 78% of the American population, that money's going to get spent probably pretty quickly. You know what I mean? And so that's this velocity of money where it's how many times money gets spent in a society. And that circulatory system actually ends up being really, really important to get money pumping through it. To kind of provide a counterpoint to the excitement that was shown across the political spectrum, there's also this hesitancy due to some of our like cultural narratives and cultural identity, things like uh, the struggle is what makes America America, this aversion to handouts, the fictional stigma around what happens when poor people receive money, the purpose of life being work-centric, which is a very American ideal, distaste for a portion of the population being lazy if they do get a handout, etc., how do you think we start moving away from narratives that are work-centric purpose and start embracing policies that eradicate poverty, but also like focus on what we can do, which is maximize freedom and autonomy and have more folks pursuing their passions? Well, I think this pandemic is having a profound influence on our work culture and what we think of as work. Whereas if you were to say to Americans, even like a few months ago, it's like work, they think nine to five, go to an office, punch in, punch out. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. now 
many organizations are just going to say, look, we're going to shrink our office. You work from home. Uh, and one of the cases I, I was making on the trail was that my wife, who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic, works harder than I do. And it's just the market doesn't recognize or reward her work. And so we need to redefine and broaden what we think of as work. And I actually think the fact that we've all gotten kicked out of our offices is going to accelerate that broadening. So I loved your summary of like the cultural hobgoblins <laughs> that are like, like yeah, enemies of basic income. And one of the things I say to folks is that, look, this is actually pro work. People will work more if they actually have a foundation and they feel some kind of hope for the future. This is actually going to create jobs because the money is going to circulate in their communities over and over again. And that's going to create jobs right there where they live. It's going to go to not just the local businesses, but also like the local church, the local nonprofits that they can also employ people and have people volunteer. Like this is a way we can actually create millions of jobs around the country. So those were the same objections I was getting, though. You're, you're right. And I'll tell an Asian joke. I was like, I love work. <laughs> you know, like The last thing I would be is like, like let's have people now. No work. I'm very pro work. This is a way yeah. to get more people in position to work. Yeah. And I, I think your point about also just having the autonomy to choose which direction you are working in and being able to choose something you're a little bit more passionate about it certainly helped me improve my work ethic, just waking up excited about what I'm pursuing. You touched on this a little bit, but man, you didn't get much time off from the campaign trail. Almost immediately after you ended your presidential bid, we entered this pandemic and basic income became such a central discussion and even adopted by governments across the world. You've been both advising governments and in the midst of all this launched Humanity Forward. Can you talk a little bit about what the pandemic has made clear regarding basic income and your projects now and moving forward with Humanity Forward? Well, one thing that happened in real life is that tens of millions of Americans got $1,200 in their accounts. And their work ethic didn't all of a sudden drop off a cliff. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't all suddenly become different people. It, it just lifted a burden for them for a particular period of time, gave them a sense of optimism about that week, that month. Circumstances have forced people to embrace cash relief in a way that no one would have believed possible even like a few months ago. When my campaign ended, I was very anxious to take all the energy that had been generated Hundreds of thousands of Americans have donated. Millions of Americans uh, supported us. And I said, well, we have to take this and help it evolve uh, and not let the energy dissipate. So I started a nonprofit called Humanity Forward that has distributed $1.5 million in cash relief. Most of the 1.5 million went to people in the Bronx. We gave a thousand people a thousand dollars. Thought that was a very easy to remember mnemonic. And, and also that the Bronx to us was like a an area where there was a real public health utility to putting money into people's hands, where it's like, how can you shelter in place if you're not able to put food on the table? It's like, let's just give you some money so you can actually adhere to public health guidelines. So we've been operating furiously because the needs are so great. We have a waiting list right now of 40,000 Americans who submitted requests for micro grants on our website, movehumanityforward.com. So what we said was like, look, we're giving away at this $1.5 million, a million of it to the Bronx, 500,000, we're gonna give to you if you need help, just fill out this form, then we'll send you a grant of $250, typically, maybe 500. And then the need, unfortunately, is so staggering that we got up to 40,000 requests without even really promoting it that hard. Mm. So if you do the math on that 40,000 times, let's call it $250 each is like $10 million worth of backlog. And I'm happy to say that we're going to make a meaningful dent in that backlog. But the issues that we were fighting for in the campaign are now front and center for tens of millions of Americans and hundreds of thousands of communities 
the vast majority of Americans operate in a mindset of scarcity where they're living paycheck to paycheck. They're not sure how they're going to pay next month's rent. And so when I came along and said, hey, we should just give everyone money. For most Americans, it was just too big an idea for them to actually <laughs> like say that's possible. Because mm -hmm. it can't be that I'm literally taking hours of my day to save myself 50 bucks. And then the magical Asian man's like, hey, we should just give you a thousand bucks. They're like, well, that, that actually does not match up to my lived experience in reality. Because right. money is this very, very scarce commodity that I trade my time for all the time. And it can't be that you can just give it to me. So what this crisis is doing is it's actually getting people's mindsets to shift around what can be possible in a society where if you said to that same person who doubted my campaign's ability to actually champion this policy, and then they get $1,200 in their bank account like a month later, uh, they're like, wow, we could do that. <laughs> we, we actually can do that. Yeah. And Humanity Forward is hoping to push that across the finish line. We can eradicate poverty in this society. We can. There are all of these problems we all want to solve in the world. Reallocating capital flows is one of the only things we can actually do like that. If our society got together and said, hey, guess what? Everyone gets this much money, done. There are many other things that we can shoot for, like fixing education and climate change and our messed up healthcare system and mental health, women and girls and all these things. But they're going to be a lot harder than what I just described. Like your society can get together and say a thousand a month for everyone, two thousand a month for everyone. And it can happen. Like we just saw it. Like our government just said, hey, $2.8 trillion, done. And, and then hundreds of billions of dollars went out to people. So that's what I've been fighting this whole time is this mindset of scarcity. And our goal has to be to try and spread that sense of possibility to other people as quickly as possible. Do you want to touch on just broadly the goals of Humanity Forward and what a win looks like you know, for this organization? Humanity Forward is championing a vision of a human-centered economy and society. So right now, we measure our progress by GDP, stock market, price growth and valuation, and headline unemployment rates. And all of those numbers are either misleading or leading us in the wrong direction. So what numbers would be more meaningful to us? Health and life expectancy, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, childhood success rates, social equity, environmental sustainability. These are things that we actually have measurements for, and we should be adopting them as our yardstick for how our economy is progressing. It's actually a must because if we don't do this, we're going to see that GDP and health and mental health are going to head in opposite directions very quickly because more and more work is going to be done by AI and machines and robots and software. And so you're going to look up and say, well, we're more productive than ever, but more and more people are uh, miserable, dying, sick, falling through the cracks. We're at that juncture right now. So my organization's goal is literally to move humanity forward, is to say we're using the wrong measurements. The measurements we've been using are literally 100 years old. Even the inventor of GDP, Simon Kuznet, said this is a terrible measure for national well-being. We should never use it as that. And here we are riding it off a cliff 100 years later. So humanity forward's goal is to literally change the way we see societal progress to orient it around how we are doing, our families are doing, our communities are doing. And the single biggest mechanism to make that happen is universal basic income because it has the net impact of improving health, education, mental health, and it immediately disconnects human value and economic value. Because right now, all of the people, not all, but like the vast majority of Americans measure themselves through economic value. They're like, how are we doing? How am I doing? How's my household doing? What's my time worth? And so if you start valuing people intrinsically, then it all of a sudden 
ends up creating a different way of measuring why we do what we do, what our time is worth, because you're immediately worth something from the get-go. What I said to people on the trail, Xander, is that imagine a country where parents could look at their kids and say, your country loves you, your country values you, and your country will invest in you in your future. Like that's actually a transformation of that person's sense of self. This crisis is a terrible, challenging time. The only silver lining is that we may be able to accelerate some of the solutions that people have been looking for for years. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work. If you'd like to follow us on social, we're at WWDKPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube, you can find our channel if you search What We Don't Know Podcast. And if you go to our website, WWDKPod.com, you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content. All right. Hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.